Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Thanks for listening to the best Houston sports podcast. And back with me for a second visit on the show is author Robert Jacobus, who just wrote the book Black Man in the Huddle, stories from the integration of Texas football. And we had a great conversation a few years ago. Might revisit that here in the coming weeks as well. But always a pleasure, Robert. And I tell you what, your book appears to be more than just a little bit apropos as we read the headlines around the country at this moment in history. Thanks for having me back on again, Robert. And yes, uh, the subject has turned timely here in the last few days. And I've gotten a lot of uh, feedback here just in the last couple, three weeks with all that's happened. Yeah, one of the things that I saw, just uh, some some interesting news, kind of cool news uh, from uh, one of the guys that you interviewed in your book, his name, Charles Brown, integrated uh, San Antonio Jefferson's football team in the mid-50s. Something really special happened this week with Charles, didn't it, Robert? Yeah, Charles, uh, he and uh, a friend of his, uh, Ed Thomas, they integrated uh, San Antonio Jefferson's uh, football program in 1956. In fact, they integrated the whole San Antonio school district. And, uh, you know, after uh, high school, Charles went into the military. And then his son later on followed him into the military. And his son went to Texas Tech, Charles Q. Brown. And, uh, you know, he has risen through the ranks of uh, the Air Force. And uh, just um, this past Monday, he was approved by Congress uh, as the uh, Air Force Chief of Staff, the first uh, African-American to be in charge of a branch of the military. So, you know, that's that's a huge, uh, huge event. Yeah, that's incredible stuff. And and with your book's title, because I, w- I want to ask you this, this might be an obvious question, but how long ago did Texas football get integrated and what was the impetus for that? It goes back, and it was actually college football first that integrated in Texas, and it goes back to 1953, which was about nine months before the Brown versus Board of Education decision, which ended segregation in schools, and it took place at what is now Angelo State University. Back then, it was uh, San Angelo College. It was a two-year school, and they had a young man by the name of Ben Kelly who uh, walked into the coach's office one August, right at the start of two days, and told Coach Max Bumgarner he wanted to play football for uh, San Angelo College, and Ben was a native of San Angelo. He played at the Black High School there, uh, Blackshear High School. Actually, Coach Baumgartner had gone to see him play a few times. Uh, ben had gone off to the University of Illinois after high school, but he didn't like it there, and he came back, and he decided to walk on at San Angelo College. And uh, Coach Baumgartner told Ben, he said, you know, I, I really can't make that decision, Ben, because, you know, we're a segregated school. And Ben Kelly said, well, who do I talk to then? And Max Baumgartner took uh, Ben Kelly outside and pointed to the president of the university's office and said, you know, that's the man you need to talk to right there. So Ben Kelly marched over there, and none of us were in the room, but apparently he must have said the right thing because next thing I knew, the school was integrated. And uh, Ben played a couple years for uh, San Angelo College, made all-conference, and uh, had a couple of pro tryouts, and then he came back to San Angelo and was a fixture there for many years. So that's where it all started. What kind of things did he have to endure as the man that was trying to integrate Texas football? Well, one of the things on, on road trips, uh, I know uh, there were a couple instances. Uh, I think Victoria College, you had a rough time. Uh, there were a couple canceled games. I want to say Texarkana College canceled the game and Blinn College in Brenham canceled the game. Uh, ben passed away in 2014. I never got a chance to really talk to him. I did talk to his wife, but I did talk to several of his teammates and and, you know, they said he, he had sometimes he had to eat in the kitchen uh, on a road trip. And it, there were positives and negatives. Uh, you know, he had, he had to endure uh, 
you know, some people stepping on him in the field, stepping on his hands and things like that, and kind of late hits and roughing him up and everything. But they said, you know, Ben was Ben was pretty good about the whole thing. And, you know, he, he understood that he was going to take some abuse. And so, you know, I guess he was kind of, I guess, willing to do it, you know. How did uh, Prairie View and TSU play a role in integration? Well, as far as integration, well, you know, for years, the HBCU colleges were really the only landing spot for uh, black athletes. And, you know, for many years, you know, they were powerhouses. You know, I'd be willing to bet some of those teams that uh, Billy Nix had at uh, Prairie View and Texas Southern, you know, they could have beaten some of the Texas colleges, I believe. But, you know, slowly uh, by uh, the early 60s, when they started integrating uh, the major college programs or you know, even some of the smaller college programs, black colleges started losing their talent levels. And, you know, it's, it's gone that way ever since the early 70s and you know now they just don't have the same talent level that they used to have many years ago uh, so you know for, but for a long time you know that they, they provided a valuable service you know as far as giving uh, black players a place to go and a chance to play you told stories about what the town of uh, rosenberg was like during segregation through coach joe washington now if that name sounds familiar to everybody his son joe washington jr was an NFL running back in the late 70s and early 80s and has a Super Bowl ring with the Redskins. But Coach Washington painted a picture of what Rosenberg was like in that earlier era. Describe the scene at that time. Right. And, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a Rosenberg native, so uh, you know, it's kind of dear to me. And I, I did get to meet Coach Washington in person about a year ago, which was uh, pretty exciting. But Rosenberg, typical town, uh, back in the 30s and 40s when he was growing up, you could cross the railroad tracks uh, to the other side of town off of 3rd Street there. And back then it was pretty much the black section of town, and they had a school, uh, Jackson High School, and that's where the blacks went there. And, you know, typical, uh, you know, they had a downtown area off of 3rd Street if you cross the tracks. And uh, kind of an interesting story is that there used to be a store in uh, Rosenberg uh, called Blaze Dry Goods. And they were open from the 1930s up until the late 90s. Well, as part of my wife's family. And uh, Joe Washington um, got a job there back in, I think, 1944 or something like that, just like sweeping the floors and things like that. And uh, he only worked there for one day because he told me that uh, there was a cafe across the street called the Eagle Cafe, and it paid more. So he ended up going over there. But a year ago uh, when I met Coach Washington, he got to meet my wife, and he was very excited, you know, getting to meet one of the Blazes, you know, a place where he worked for one day back in the 40s. Going back to Blaze Dry Goods, you're talking about uh, what it was like for blacks in Rosenberg back then. You know, for example, and this was very common all throughout the South, Blaze Dry Goods sold a lot of clothes and things like that. Now, if uh, African-American wanted to go uh, buy some clothes, they were not allowed to try them on in the store. They had to basically buy them and take them home. And uh, I, I don't think, in a, lot, in a lot of cases, I don't think they could return them. Obviously, um, you know, they had separate facilities in downtown Rosenberg, restrooms, things like that. The movie theater, which was across the street from Blaze Dry Goods, uh, like a lot of theaters back then, they had the balcony for the for the black patrons. Coach Washington told me sometimes they would have a special night to where they would show uh, black-made movies, you know, with black actors, black actresses directed by blacks. And, uh, you know, it was, like, it was like special night for African-Americans. Um, and he said he used to go watch uh, Lena Horne in some of those movies and things like that. But uh, Rosenberg was kind of a typical southern town back then. Right. And it just seems like there was a lot of connections with Houston. I mean, we just talked about a little bit about Prairie View and TSU and the role that they played in all this. But 
Uh, you also had Joe Washington. And then there was a guy whose name I don't know if anybody would be that familiar with, but Julian Spence. He, he was pretty important in Houston sports history. Who was Julian Spence? Well, Julian Spence was really the, the first African-American Houston Oiler. He was from the Austin area. And uh, he had gone to a small college that doesn't even exist anymore. It was called Samuel Houston College. It eventually merged with uh, Tillotson College. You may have heard of Houston Tillotson College. And, um, you know, he played in the NFL for a short period of time. But then in 1960, when the Oilers came into Houston, he and another gentleman by the name of John White, and John White had played at Texas Southern, they were the first uh, two African-American Houston Oilers. You know, Julian was a defensive back. Uh, in fact, uh, he played with them two years. And the second year he played with them, he made a key interception in the AFL championship game against Chargers to help seal the win. And uh, he was, uh, a lot of people said he was the smallest player in the AFL. He was only like 150 pounds or something like that. And then uh, afterwards, uh, he went on to coach at Grambling. And then he coached in Lamarck for a few years. And from what I understand, uh, he was the first Houston Oiler on those first two championship teams in 1960 and 61. He was the first one of them to pass away. He passed away in 1990. I talked more about Julian. Uh, I think we're going to talk a little later about one of my upcoming books. Um, he, he's featured more in my next book, too. But he, yeah, he's also talked about a, you know, a black man in the huddle. Yeah, this there's a way to connect the dots a lot with, with Houston. And I'm going to bring in another guy that I think... People might know this name, but uh, let me just kind of set it up by saying, you know, one of my favorite stories in the history of NFL films was the story of the 1951 San Francisco Dons, which I must have first seen around 30 years ago on NFL films. And for those who don't know this story, the Dons were the University of San Francisco. And I'll explain the connection to all this in just a few seconds, but they were undefeated in 1951, but not invited to a bowl game because two of their players were black. Uh, they badly needed that bowl game because the program was having major financial issues. And because they weren't invited to a bowl, despite their perfect 9-0 record, the football program folded. So 1951 was their last year. And, and this is where we kind of close in on on uh, the story that you have in the book, Robert, because, you know, eight members of that team played in the NFL. Five of them were pro bowlers. Four of them, guys like Bob St. Clair, Dick Stanfill, uh, Gino Marchetti, and the star running back on the Dons, who you wrote about in your book, ended up in the NFL Hall of Fame. Who was that man, and what's his connection to your story? Well, that would be Ollie Matson, the great Ollie Matson, who also a, a track star, won a silver medal in the 1952 Olympics. And what a lot of people don't realize is that Ollie Matson uh, went to high school for a little while in Houston, went to Yates High School. Uh, Ollie was a native of Trinity, Texas, you know, not too far from Huntsville, and his family moved to Houston when I think he was about eight or nine, and uh, he played uh, football, like I said, at Yates his freshman and sophomore year, but then uh, for his junior year, his family decided to move to California. One of the chapters in Black Man in the Huddle talks about how uh, in Texas and in other you know, states throughout the South, African-American families moved west a lot to California because integration-wise, things were a little more relaxed. Uh, they had more opportunities there. You know, that's why the Matsons moved there. They moved up to the San Francisco area. And um, I, th I believe uh, they wanted Ollie to become a, dent a dentist. And actually, his son, who is still in Houston, is a dentist. You know, I did talk to Ollie's twin sister, who is uh, still around, and I interviewed her and everything. And uh, you know, she said uh, you know, her, their parents moved up there for better opportunities. 
she said when Ali made it up there in San Francisco, he, start, he started filling out and everything like that. And, uh, you know, he went to uh, San Francisco Junior College for a year and then on to uh, University of San Francisco, where, uh, you know, he, he became a star, obviously. And, you know, he was one of the ones that, uh, you know, they were not going to let play in the bowl game and they ended up having to fold the program. And, uh, well, his other black teammate, Burl Toller, a lot of people don't know is, you know, he was injured uh, badly, but then he became the first black referee in the NFL. Uh, he's a referee for many years. So, uh, yeah, there's a connection there with uh, Holly Matson. But, you know, like I said, there's a whole chapter in the book about different people who uh, ended up going west for more opportunities. Yeah, so much uh, cool stuff as far as that San Francisco Dons team because the team's first publicist was a guy named Pete Rosell, which is the NFL commissioner for 30 years, ended up in the Hall of Fame as well. And Robert, I just I'll never forget how Rosell described the scene at the end of those Don games when, you know, they had the whole game wrapped up. They'd won the game and the whole stands would just start singing the folk song. Good night, Irene. And they'd all be waving their handkerchiefs in the stands as they sang. Good night, Irene. Good night. Ali Matson was quoted in the story as saying, you know, the whole city was behind us. I really thought we owned the city of San Francisco. And it's interesting because maybe he never ends up there if the situation in Texas was better at that time. That's right. And, you know, the list goes on for people that moved from, uh, well, for example, Frank Robinson, the baseball Hall of Famer. He spent his first 10 years in Beaumont. And he ended up in San Francisco at McClyman's High School, famous high school. Uh, Bill Russell, you know, Boston Celtics, great. Same thing. You know, they went they went to high school together. Can you picture those two guys on the same high school basketball team? Yeah, wow. And you know, but you know, it was very com- it was very common all sports. You know, and uh, and it wasn't just um, um, California. Uh, Mel Renfro, the Dallas Cowboys, great. You know, he lived his first couple years in Houston. But uh, when he was two years old, uh, they moved to uh, Oregon and because uh, I, th- I believe his brother had some respiratory problems and they thought it was a better environment than the Houston area, uh, it's air quality-wise or humidity-wise. And so, you know, he ended up there and also for opportunities for his family and everything. It, it, it wasn't just uh, football. It, it was all sports. Yeah, you mentioned in the book how many of those guys just, you know, they left Texas because of what was going on. And one of the guys that you talked about was Rami Loud, and I hope I have that name pronounced correctly, but who who was he and what did he end up doing? Well, he he's an interesting person because he was from the same high school as Ben Kelly. If you talk about connections out in San Angelo, but for his last, I can't remember if it was one or two years of high school, his family moved to Los Angeles. He ended up being a football star linebacker. And he ended up playing football at UCLA. And then from UCLA, he went to the American Football League. And in, I believe it was 1964, he became the first African-American assistant coach in uh, pro football history. And then fast forward 10 years later, when uh, if people remember the World Football League, the WFL, which existed for a short time in the 70s, uh, he ended up being the first African-American owner of a sports franchise. He, uh, he owned one of the Florida teams, I believe. But you know, it's kind of funny that he and uh, Ben Kelly, you know, the other uh, pioneer, were, were teammates in high school for a couple of years. Yeah, that's uh, fascinating. And, and, you know, there's a name that people know around here. I think a lot of people know the name Jerry Levias. But just remind people, Robert, a little bit about who he was and, and what he went through uh, with all of this. So, I mean, it, I've heard Jerry talk about it at the Touchdown Club when he was on it there a few years ago. But explain a little bit about Jerry and, and, and what he went through. Well, Jerry was the first.
first uh, African American player, uh, first African American scholarship player in the old Southwest Conference in 1966 for the SMU Mustangs. And, uh, you know, University of Houston integrated the year before with Warren McVeigh. But, you know, in talking to Jerry, he said that, uh, you know, the Southwest Conference was a bigger deal to integrate because, you know, to him, he said, you know, a lot of businessmen were from the Southwest Conference. They graduated from the Southwest Conference. They like to talk about Southwest Conference games around the water cooler on Monday morning. And, you know, Jerry said he felt he was kind of busting up their little club by uh, integrating. And, uh, you know, Jerry came out of Beaumont Hebert High School, where a lot of great uh, African-American players came out of. Hayden Fry, who just passed away a few months ago, you know, the coach at SMU, uh, you know, he came to Beaumont to uh, recruit Jerry. You know, he, he didn't bother telling Jerry he was going to be the first African-American in the Southwest Conference. Jerry didn't find out until later. And uh, he, he told me that if he'd have known that, he may have had second thoughts. But, uh, you know, in 1965, he did uh, take the plunge, and you know, he you know, went up there for his freshman year. Uh, you know, he endured a lot of hardship. A lot of players didn't want to room with him. People didn't want to sit by him in class. You know, several times he wanted to quit. You know, luckily, uh, Hayden Fry was like a father figure to him. And then the following year, uh, one of uh, Jerry's teammates from Hebert, uh, a gentleman by the name of Rufus Cormier, ended up coming up there and playing alongside with him. You know, and that helped a lot. And uh, interestingly enough, Rufus uh, is still in the Houston area. Uh, he eventually became the first... Uh, African-American partner in the Baker and Botts law firm in Houston. In fact, Rufus came to one of my book signings last November. You know, I've talked to him and everything. But Jerry had it rough, especially the first year, 1966. Uh, you know, there was kind of a target on his back. Now, he did help SMU win their first conference title in 20 years in 1966, and they went to the Cotton Bowl. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, it was rough. You know, like you said, you know, he's talked several times about quitting. Uh, you know, luckily he stuck it out. But, uh, no, it was not easy whatsoever. You know, in contrast, you know, we talked to Warren McVeigh. He was kind of welcomed by the University of Houston, by the uh, people there. So, you know, it, it all depends who you talk to with these stories. You know, some pe- some of the players were treated very well. Some were treated poorly. Uh, it, it's a little bit of both, you know, just uh, positives and negatives, just like anything. Yeah, besides what Jerry went through, what were some of the stories that stuck out as the worst incidents of racism around Texas during segregation? Well, probably one of the interesting stories uh, happened in the high school ranks. Every time I read about or look at it, it's just like it's hard to believe was the first integrated game in the state of Texas history was supposed to take place down in the coastal bend between Robstown High School and Yoakum. And uh, Yoakum was still segregated, but Robstown had uh, integrated in the fall of 55 with, uh, I want to say, six or seven black players. And their star player was a fullback by the name of Willie Jones. Willie ended up going to Purdue, and then he played for the Buffalo Bills for a while. There were articles in the Corpus Christi newspaper in the week leading up to the game talking about how it's going to be a historic game and, you know, it's an integrated game and everything. But then uh, three days before the game, Yoakum canceled it. And so, you know, what was supposed to be the first integrated game in state history didn't happen. Now, the following week, there were a couple, three uh, integrated games that happened. But then Yoakum had to make a decision after that first game that they canceled because half of their schedule was now against teams that had blacks on their team. And so the school board met, the parents met, and all that, trying to figure out what to do for the rest of the season. Well, they decided to go ahead and play the rest of their schedule. But what they did was there were some parents that did not want their kids taking the field against a black person. And so when Yoakum was playing a team that had blacks on it, if 
one of the blacks came into the game, there were certain players on Yoakum's team that would come out of the game because they didn't want to be on the same field as a black man. This strategy didn't work very well because two weeks in a row, uh, Yoakum lost to Referio, which was integrated. They had a really good running back by the name of James Lott. And in fact, he had some uh, nephews and things like that end up playing at UT later. And James Lott scored uh, six touchdowns against them. And they beat him like 40-something to nothing because, uh, you know, a lot of the Yoakum's best players would have to leave the field when James Locke came in the game. And then the following week, they played Port Lavaca, Yoakum did, and Port Lavaca had three excellent African-American players, and they ended up winning, I think, 76 to nothing against Yoakum. So after that, Yoakum kind of scrapped that plan to where uh, – <laughs> Where, the, where their players would uh, leave the field. And also the teams that had blacks on, they figured it out that as long as they kept a black player in the game, Yoakum would leave their, a lot of their better players on the sidelines. Every time I read that story, I just couldn't fathom that, you know, that you know, they would want to, uh, I guess, leave people out of the game or things like that because they were afraid to take the field with a, with a black person. So Yeah, I mean, you mentioned you know a couple of names already, but give, give me a couple of heroes that you think we should remember from that time that stood out against that segregated system? Well, one of the uh, other gentlemen, no relation to Ben Kelly, uh, but a gentleman by the name of Lewis Kelly, and in 1956, he helped integrate Cisco College a little bit east of Abilene. He and four of his teammates from uh, Abilene Woodson High School, which is a black high school, you know, he, he integrated the college. Uh, you know, he ran into a few problems, too, just like Ben Kelly and things like that. But then Lewis uh, eventually became a very well-known uh, high school coach up in Lubbock, uh, at Lubbock Estacado. And, uh, you know, the reason I bring Lewis up is because he comes to mind because I'd gotten to know him fairly well, and, you know, we've become friends, but uh, Lewis passed away uh, toward the end of uh, September uh, last year, you know, to show the impact he made on people. You know, I, I went to his funeral in Lubbock, and uh, they had to have it at the high school in the auditorium. You know, he was so well-known, so popular among his players. He looked back, if it hadn't been for integration, that none of that uh, possibly ever would happen. Uh, so, you know, uh, Lewis kind of stands out in my mind. Another gentleman uh, from uh, San Saba, Texas, uh, Willie Storms. In 1955, he was one of the early uh, integration pioneers at San Saba High School. Now, he had the uh, instance where a game was canceled on him against Rockdale, Texas High School. Interesting story about that is I, I think, you know, most people know, the black world and the white world didn't really have much contact with each other back in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. You know, what was going on across the tracks, you know, white people didn't really know about and vice versa. What's interesting about uh, when uh, Willie Storms was playing for San Saba, Rockdale canceled the game, the white team. Well, it turns out the black high school in Rockdale, ACOC High School, they were a powerhouse. They won state in the PVIO, the Black High School League, they won state in football and basketball. They had a couple guys that played pro football and pro basketball. And like I said, they were a powerhouse. But the uh, white high school, Rockville High School, they didn't win a game the whole year. And when I was interviewing people later, you know, many years later, 50-something years later after all this happened, when I was talking to some of the black players at Acock High School, they had, they had no recollection or no idea that the white high school had canceled their game against San Saba and Willie Storms. They, they had no clue. That kind of shows you how separate the two worlds were uh, back then. Uh, I just I thought that was another interesting aspect of a uh, whole black-white thing. You know, uh, connecting to what's going on today, when you talk to everybody involved in this story, did you get much of a reaction from them as to, you know, where they think 
things are right now or if there's stuff that they were still concerned about as far as, you know, playing football for black players in Texas? Well, one of the things that I found interviewing people, and they didn't talk a huge amount about what's happening today, but a lot of uh, players, several said that they feel that there's still segregation in schools, but now it happens inside the schools as opposed to having separate schools. If, if, if that makes sense. Right. Some of the black players I interviewed, not all of them felt integration was a good thing. You know, some of them felt that, you know, their schools were taken away, their traditions were taken away, you know, their teachers or their black teachers that they felt really cared about them were taken away from them. And they were thrown into a white environment where, you know, in a lot of cases, to be honest, they were just shuffled off to the side. And, you know, that's where some of them were saying that's where they felt like segregation was still taking place inside schools. And, you know, I, I taught in public schools for a long time. And yeah, I could say that, you know, that there's times that, that could be the case. But then there were others that were on the other side where they said, you know, they couldn't reach their full potential unless there was integration. Well, in fact, one of the people that told me that was Charles Brown. I, I made a comment the other day uh, on Facebook. I made a post and his son would not be chief of staff of the Air Force if integration never happened. So, you know, there's positives and negatives. Once again, uh, you know, people have all different opinions. So, yeah, and, and, you know, it's interesting because, you know, you write about the integration of the University of Houston in, in a previous book during the 1960s. You've written about this. You have great insight as to, you know, how, how this has sort of taken place over the years. Do you have a, any sense or any take on what what's going on right now and, and where we are in, in all of this? And do you, do you get a feeling that something good's going on right now that maybe can last? I mean, obviously, it's a terrible thing what happened, but hopefully some good can come out of this. I'm not against the people protesting, you know, as long as they do it uh, mostly peacefully. You know, hopefully change is going to come from this. Uh, I'm hoping. You know, I, I haven't reached out to some of my people that I interviewed. Uh, in fact, that was one of my goals here in the next uh, few days, and, you know, get their reaction on it and, and uh, things like that. You know, a good friend of mine, uh, Michael Hurd, he wrote a book about three years ago called uh, Thursday Night Lights, and that's the history of... Uh, black high school football in Texas. And he's a director of a, a humanities program up at Prairie View. And, you know, I've been wanting to talk to him about the whole uh, situation, you know, how, how he feels about it. Ho- hopefully positive change is going to come out of this. I'm hoping, but uh, not sure which direction we're going in yet. <laughs> so, um, but the hope is there. Yeah, that's uh, for sure. And and y- one of the things is you- you're going to continue to do this because you got another book or two in the queue and, and the same sort of genre. You're, you're going to continue with this. Well, I do have another book. Pretty sure it, it, everything was pretty much set up until the coronavirus hit, but uh looks like uh, hopefully early next year I will have a third book out. And the uh, working title or a tentative title is To Live and Play in Dixie, Pro Football's Entry into the Jim Crow South. And that book kind of morphed out of uh, Black Man in the Huddle because my original Black Man in the Huddle uh, also had some chapters on pro football in there. There was a team in 1952 called Dallas Texans, the original Dallas Texans. They only lasted in Dallas for not even a whole season. They ended up going to Baltimore and becoming the Colts. They were the last NFL team to go bankrupt. But what I found in my research on Black Man in the Huddle was that the 52 Dallas Texans actually had two black players on their team. So, you know, I did research. I'm, I had a whole chapter and they were, uh, the two gentlemen's name were George Taliaferro and Buddy Young. George was still alive. I was able to talk to him. I was able to talk to his wife. And uh, Buddy Young's wife was still alive. I was able to talk to her. And, you know, and they talked about what it was like living in Dallas in 1952 
you know, the while it was still segregated, the conditions and everything. And and then I was also going to develop a chapter when in 1960 the Oilers came into Houston, and then the Cowboys, and then later version of the Dallas Texans, who are now the Kansas City Chiefs, came in. And you know, 1960 those cities were still segregated. And so what was what was it like for those players that well, like Julian Spence, who we mentioned, what was it like living in Houston in segregation? What was it like for players on opposing teams when they came into Dallas, the Cotton Bowl, or when they came into Houston, Jefferson Stadium? You know, people like Jim Brown. You know, what was it like where they have to stay? But it, it made my Black Man in the Huddle book too long, and so I cut out about 30,000, 40,000 words, and I decided to develop a whole new book on the pro football aspect. And I expanded it from Texas, where I included, you know, after uh, World War II, the NFL reintegrated. The NFL and then later the American Football League, they played a lot of exhibition games in the South in the 40s and 50s and 60s, early 60s. And I started looking into, you know, what was it like when black players had to go to Birmingham or Mobile or uh, New Orleans or places like that? What was it like for them? You know, going in there, you know, accommodations-wise, all that. And so, uh, you know, I talked to a lot of those players that were still around, a lot of them in their 80s, some in their 90s. Yeah, and, and so I basically developed it into a whole book. And uh, like I said, hopefully that is going to be out uh, early next year, um, I'm hoping. And then from there, I just finished another book since I've been stuck inside for the last two, three months. <laughs> uh, I did another book, but this is more uh, just kind of for fun. And it's on high school football in Texas. The tentative title is Lightning in a Bottle, uh, One-Hit Wonder Football Teams of Texas High School Football. And what I did was I looked through the state records and it is about certain high school teams in the state of Texas history who had that one special season in their school's history, kind of like a one-hit wonder. In other words, they were lousy before that season, they were lousy after that season, but they had that one great season. So I found uh, 10 teams through the state's history. They didn't necessarily have to win a state title, but, you know, 10 close and went pretty far in the playoffs. You know, I just, you know, talked to players and reconstructed it. And 10 chapters, 10 teams from all different years, all different classifications, all different parts of the state. So uh, we're, we're, we're shopping for a publisher right now. Hopefully we'll find one. I finished that up a couple months ago. And so now I'm working on a, my latest book, which I spent a lot of last week traveling around talking to coaches. And, you know, I started a, a, a book on uh, Texas high school football coaching families where the dad was the patriarch and then he had several sons that went into coaching and then from there you know sometimes it was third generation in some cases even fourth generation you know i'm looking at some pretty uh, fairly well-known families like you know the detmers you know sonny detmer and his sons Hoy and ty you know they're, they're both coaching and you know sam harrell up in ennis you know a lot of famous families uh you know todd dodge boston westlake working on getting him signed up for the book so that's what i'm working on right now yeah, you've been extremely busy, and I, I'm looking forward to this one-hit wonder book as a fan of, of music one-hit wonders. That's kind of, kind of a great idea that you have. Before we close it out, let people know how they can get a copy of Black Man in the Huddle. There's several ways. Uh, now, people can go to my website, uh, robertdjacobus.com, and if you go on the website, you, uh, there's several little icons you can click on. You can uh, get it from Amazon or my publisher, Texas A&M University Press. I believe there's an icon on there for Barnes & Noble. Uh, in the, uh, Pretty much all the Barnes & Nobles in Houston, pretty much throughout the state, have a copy of Black Man in the Huddle. And uh, so, you know, there's several ways to get it. Sounds great. And I can't tell you how much I appreciate you coming on the show and 
Boy, this is, sounds like the perfect book for anybody that is watching what's going on today. It's kind of a, a great appendium or uh, I forget what the exact, what is that word again? The, the compendium or something like that to, to what's going on. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Hopefully, uh, you know, I hate what happened, um, you know, up in Minnesota and things like that, but you know, maybe it'll get some people to pick up my book and you know, maybe they can learn a little bit, a little about black, white relations, uh, you know, in Texas and, uh, you know, other places too. you know, wake some people up. Hopefully you know, the, the more you can educate people, you know, the better things are. That's for sure. And, and thanks again, Robert. I just want to remind everybody before we closed up the show, just hope all our listeners had a chance to listen to our th- last throwback Thursday podcast, looking back at some of the best moments and favorite stories over the past seven years. You got, Lance McCullers talking about the moment that changed his life. You'll find out which Astros story should be a major motion picture, how Charles Barkley crashed Lisa Malosky's baby shower. We got stories from Bill Brown, Colby Rasmus, Steve Sparks, World Cup champ Megan Klingenberg, Oilers safety Bubba McDowell on the great Buddy Ryan, Kevin Gilbride fight, many more. So you're going to want to listen to that. And for you longtime listeners, uh, you might hear a few stories that you missed over the show's history. You never know. But uh, anyway, that's all we got for this one. Just want to tell everybody to stay healthy and safe and have a great week. You're listening to Houston Sports Talk. Don't forget to follow Houston Sports Talk on Facebook and Twitter. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, the Google Podcast app, or the Stitcher app. You can support us by giving us a five-star review on iTunes or by telling your friends about us. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening.